Executive compensation. Striking the right balance between executives and stakeholders. Executive pay attracts attention and scrutiny as companies and society at large face the challenge of rising prices and interest rates, although the latter might have peaked. At next year's AGMs, listed companies will be submitting their directors' remuneration policies to a binding shareholder vote in the UK. Executives eye US packages, while shareholders want to see remuneration policies that are fair, linked to the delivery of business strategy, of achieving goals. It is challenging to find the right balance. How can companies strike the right balance? What is fair? I'm delighted to talk with Paul Norris, he's senior partner of MM&K Limited. It's an independent advisory firm specializing in directors' pay, performance and related corporate governance. Welcome to the BetterBots podcast series. I'm Dr. Sabine Demkowski, founder and managing partner of BetterBots. We make the boards of the most ambitious organizations more effective. Our mission at Better Boards is to contribute to creating better boards. We do this by providing clients with an evidence-based approach for board evaluations and board development programs. Our clients have access to an innovative digital platform they can use for their internal and as part of an external evaluation. To fulfill our mission, we give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. Hi, Paul. Thank you so, so much for making time to contribute to the BetterBots podcast series. Well, thank you, Sabine. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very pleased to join in. Well, it's a timely topic. We are recording this podcast pretty much at the end of the year. So everyone is a little bit in this year-end mode. And okay, year-end mode means at a lot of organizations, let's think about compensation for our executives and our staff. Now, A lot is going on in that space. We are both sitting in the UK and uh, executives in the UK are eyeing enviously the compensation packages in the US. Investors demand transparency. The media puts attention on the subject. So it's a lot for a Remco chair to consider and balance. What are, in your view, Paul, the key challenges that keep Remco chairs awake at night? Well, well, Sabina, as you say, it's a very big question, <clears throat> very topical. And there's no doubt that the role of the remuneration committee uh, and the remuneration committee chairs become more demanding. But to pick out four, I think, four key challenges, I would say the following. I think, first of all, managing the, the diverse, you know, the much wider range of uh, interests and objectives from a, a much greater range of stakeholders you know, increasing pressure from regulators and and particularly the unregulated proxy agents, both nationally and internationally. And it's proxy agents like ISS and Glass-Lewis, who your listeners will be familiar, they're not regulated. Uh, They don't vote, but they wield an enormous amount of influence, particularly uh, when remuneration committees are are under a lot of pressure. They're inclined to pay a lot of attention to them. Management succession planning, thirdly, I think is very important and something that does keep NEDs and remuneration committees awake. I think there's a, personally, I think there's a lot of scope and a good argument for mixing, blending the, the work of the nomination and remuneration committees to work more effectively 
or to improve diversity and inclusion at board and executive levels. And, and, you know, we did a bit of research recently on the number of female remuneration committee chairs in the FTSE 350. And interestingly, very nearly two thirds of them are female. Oh, wow. Which I think might be, it is, yeah, the, wow, that made us, that made us sit up. And maybe an indication of the direction of travel, the, the, the importance that companies are placing on diversity and board level. And fourthly, quickly, I think the real challenge of solving the pay for performance equation that, you know, stakeholders and investors are so keen on. It's difficult given the range of stakeholder interests, you know, but it is achievable. It must be achievable. And then because, you know, directors remuneration reports in certainly in the UK and Canada are received more than 90% acceptances in the latest AGM proxy season. So there are four challenges that I think keep them keep them on their toes. Yeah, no, very well put. And I can very much relate also to what you say in succession planning, because in the board evaluations we conduct, succession planning frequently comes up as an issue. Yeah. But I find your thought also very interesting about the closer working relationship between the nomination and the remuneration committee. Have you actually seen any companies that start to merge these two committees? Yes, we have. Not many. I think most companies would claim that there's a close working relationship between the two committees. But some of our clients have established what they call remuneration or compensation and nomination committees you know, with the same membership. Uh, so they're working very, very closely together to tackle this issue of board succession and the wider issue of diversity and inclusion. Mm, that's interesting. Now, coming back to the challenges of remuneration chairs and remuneration committees, what does good look like? I mean, our listeners are always keen to get really practical insights. What does good look like? Good remuneration committees actually doing to balance these interests of the very different uh, stakeholder perspectives? Yes, that's a very good question. And you know, the role of the remuneration committee has certainly expanded in recent years. And I think it's first of all right to say there are both internal and external stakeholders. The wider workforce is, is an important, perhaps the most important internal stakeholder. But the external stakeholders would include customers, for example, suppliers, even potential employees, those who come to look for a job in the company, investors, obviously, and the wider community, which, is, which, which the, company, the company serves. And you ask what works? Well, you know, what we've seen working is, first of all, and fundamentally, a good working relationship between the chair of a remuneration committee, the CEO and the head of HR. That's an important fundamental aspect, feature of a good working remuneration committee and remuneration policy. Secondly, what works well is being visible visible to the wider workforce and the wider range of stakeholders, being clear about pay in the wider workforce and how it relates to executive pay. And, and some practical things that companies are doing there are creating or appointing a designated, for example, a designated employee engagement non-executive director, designated non-executive director to head up a, an ESG committee and a diversity committee to create. And what that does is create a direct link between those those very important features of, of corporate life and good corporate governance and gives them a direct, direct access to board level. Another practical aspect, practical feature of works well in terms of the wider issue of, of fairness, which is terribly difficult to define but very important, 
you know, is a standardization of pension contribution rates, which seems like a fairly small thing, but between directors on the one hand and the wider workforce on the other, which is, you know, which is an, an example and a demonstration of even handedness and something that certainly UK corporate governance requires. Shareholders want to understand, don't they, how pay is linked to the company's strategic vision and the returns they, they expect to make. So making clear disclosures about incentive plan targets and performance against those targets, you know, using the annual reports to do that and to tell that story is important and works well when it comes to the important question of engagement with shareholders. And when it comes to reporting, don't report what you would like to do, report what you have done. Because again, that's what its shareholders are looking for. And it gives a clear message about the progress companies are making to achieve their goals. I just mentioned engagement with shareholders and other stakeholders. That's important to gauge their sentiment. It's to feedback information internally and to do that in a standard form so that everybody understands it. So when it comes to telling the company's story, there's a consistent story to tell. And staying, and part of that is staying on top of the huge amount of regulation that's, that is there now facing our remuneration committees and non-executive directors. This year alone, the UK, the US, Australia, Switzerland, South Africa have all introduced new corporate governance measures or re- revised corporate governance measures, which is an awful lot to take on board. And um, those are things that we have seen working, working well. I mean, you mentioned this ever-increasing flood of regulations, recommendations, codes, topics, yeah? yeah? Just to pick out one ESG. Yeah. How are companies really approaching this uh, with regards to their ESG commitments and how do they incorporate really to link compensation with ESG performance? Well, you know, we've done a lot of research into, and, and others have, of course, a lot of research into ESG and how it might relate to not only company performance in a wider sense, but remuneration in particular. And our, it's quite clear from our research, and indeed research for others, but it's quite clear from our research, there's a much, much greater use of ESG performance targets in executive incentives as adopted by global companies. Mm-hmm. We looked at company practice in the world's major markets. And the leaders in this activity are Europe, the UK, perhaps Australia uh, is a leader, and South Africa lead the way with over, I mean, they have over 80% of, their, of the largest companies in these territories have adopted some form of ESG measures into incentive. We'll come on to that in a minute. The prevalence of ESG measures, which companies are using the most, utilities, materials and energy companies, extractive industries, for example, which you might expect, and the financial sector. And the the lowest prevalence of ESG measures is in the IT sector, interestingly enough. There's increasing pressure from investors for incentives to include ESG targets. And a common theme is that they must be aligned to, you know, business strategy. As I mentioned earlier, investors want to see the disclosures showing how performance has been measured against those goals. That's the theme of disclosing, you know, the desire to disclose outcomes rather than aspirations. So what are companies doing? Well, the most common ESG performance measures relate to the environment. Again, perhaps not surprisingly, climate and greenhouse gas emissions. The use of environmental measures has also increased among the world's largest companies. 
And again, the, the, the leading regions are Europe, the UK and South Africa. When it comes to other areas, social measures, I touched earlier on diversity and, um, and inclusion. And that continues to grow. The measures related to diversity and inclusion continue to grow as regulators put pressure on companies to diversify management structures, for example. And as companies realise the value of greater diversity, I mentioned the, the number of female uh, remuneration committee chairs in the FTSE 350, for example. ESG targets are more prevalent, and I think this is quite interesting, in short-term incentives than in longer-term incentives. But longer-term incentives are catching up. And I think the reason for that is, first of all, the difficulty of measuring ESG. You know, if you think about the way emissions, for example, are broken down into scope one, two, and three emissions, perhaps scopes one and two, your listeners will probably be quite familiar with this, are perhaps not so hard to identify. But scope three emissions, which are, um, you know, related to, they're very indirect, they're related to the emissions arising up and down a company's value chain over which there's very little control, but which probably account for more than 70% of a company's emissions. Very difficult to get hold of. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why short-term incentives, perhaps, rather than long-term incentives, have included uh, ESG targets. I think that's changing and it's likely to change in future, but it's where things stand at, that, stand at the moment. Only 28% of global companies' long-term incentive plans include an ESG target. Let's look a little bit to the future, Paul. Look, there's a lot of talk in many countries about this huge divide in society. You know, and that, that is, of course, fueling the discussion about pay. I mean, the multiples of a normal worker to an executive have been widening over the years. Looking to the future, how do you view the direction of travel for executive pay? Maybe just a couple of thoughts. I think there'll be a continued use of, you know, performance scorecards because there has to be a balance between the financial and non-financial targets and measures for incentive plans because, you know, the money's got to come from somewhere. I think likely to be the case going forward that the majority of incentive payments will be based on financial performance measures and that the balance will be made up of uh, strategic and perhaps ESG measures. I think that's very likely to happen. I can't see that changing. I think um, might have indicated the, the pressure for longer performance measurement periods in long-term incentive plans. It does seem, certainly for some businesses, certainly in the energy sector and the extractive industry sector, that a three-year cycle for a long-term plan isn't really long enough and bears no relationship to the investment and return cycles in those sectors. The UK government has put pressure, or regulators have put pressure on companies to expand their to extend their, their measurement periods. And there are examples globally of companies that have um, four, five, even seven-year periods for their incentive plans. Pressure on companies, for, on executives to acquire and retain a larger shareholding in their businesses for a longer period. I can see that coming linked to the previous point. And uh, remuneration committees being expected to exercise their discretion both upwards and downwards, to avoid formulaic outcomes. And that could be an issue for them, a challenge for them, as it exposes them to, to criticism from stakeholders, which means they'll have to or should be. Those, those remuneration committees that have thought about this carefully, set out parameters within which they'll exercise their discretion and communicated them, 
will be much better placed to deal with that challenge than those who have not. Okay, super. Sadly, Paul, we have to come to an end. And at the end, we always ask, what are the three things our listeners should take away from this podcast? Well, I mean, there are, there are many, but to pick out three, first of all, don't be afraid to ask the right questions. And they could be challenging questions, but that's the first point. Secondly, get on the front foot and tell the story. Engage with stakeholders and shareholders. And thirdly, do all of this by ensuring that there's a robust corporate governance framework within which both the executive and non-executive management operate within and are fully bought into. Fantastic. Paul, thank you so, so much for contributing to the Better Boss podcast series. Well, I hope it was useful and I really enjoyed it, Sabina. Thank you very much. How can we help you and your board? We at Better Boards are always delighted to hear from you. If you have ideas about a topic, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, if you would like to learn more about our work, get a demo of our platform, get in touch. You can best reach us at info at better-boards.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.